0: Today on CityCast Denver. Theo Wilson went undercover in the alt-right five years ago. Trump was president, and these groups were growing and gaining strength online. He went in and saw what they talk about when black men like him aren't around. Then Theo's TED Talk on this infiltration went viral. I became Lucius 25,
1: white supremacist lurker. (sighs) And digitally, I began to infiltrate the infamous
0: alt-right movement. So now, as we're gearing up for what could be another contested election, the white supremacist right is rising again. According to a new report from the Anti-Defamation League, there are 968 people living in Colorado right now who at one point were affiliated with the Oath Keepers, a far-right group founded in 2009. In some cases, they are our police, our soldiers, our first responders, and in two cases, our elected officials.
1: And this is what I'm trying to draw attention to and have been trying a long time to get folks' eyes on. And sometimes it feels like an uphill battle.
0: Theo Wilson is on the show today to talk about what he sees in the new Oath Keepers report and what we should be thinking about with that election less than six weeks away. Today is Monday, October 3rd, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Theo Wilson, welcome back to CityCast Denver.
1: Hey, thank you for having me back.
0: So let's talk about this report that came out recently from the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism because it showed that 968 Coloradans are currently listed as members of this super right-wing group called the Oath Keepers. Mm -hmm. I know that you have personal experience infiltrating Mm -hmm. groups like the Oath Keepers. Can you talk about why you did that and and what you gained or what you learned from being sort of on the inside?
1: Yeah, so for those of us the folks who don't know exactly what you're referring to, in 2015 to 2016, I created Fake Profile and infiltrated alt-right groups online, primarily through the rabbit hole of YouTube, which a lot of people don't know is a portal to the dark web. And so um, I started with a little Infowars, went on into some American Renaissance, National Vanguard Alliance, And, uh, you know, I started commenting on videos, talking bad about Al Sharpton and Black Lives Matter. I started uh, bemoaning race baiters like Eric Holder and Barack Obama. And um, just mirroring the anti-black sentiments that were thrown at me. And to be honest, it was kind of exhilarating. (laughs) What I ended up doing was spending about eight months figuring out what was behind the vitriol. And generally speaking, it was fear, the zero sum game of if black folks and brown folks gain, then I lose what's going on with me as a white male not having as much as my ancestors. These are the things that they were saying. It's got to be the fault of the immigrants. It's got to be the fault of these lazy black folks taking advantage of the system. What about crime in Chicago? Don't talk to me about police brutality. All of those things, all of these tropes. I sniffed them out because when I saw the rise of Donald Trump and who was supporting him, that was an existential threat to me. I could not let that go unaddressed. Just me being me as a police brutality survivor myself, as a conspicuously Black man, there's nothing ethnically ambiguous about me. You you know what I mean? Um, I can't hide. And so... Going down that rabbit hole provided me some insight onto the sociological forces driving the researches of open-faced hate. I mean, listen, the fact is, is that millennials get a lifetime of diet brand history. I mean, America seems to be hell-bent on filling its textbooks with uh, cliff-notes versions of its dark past. This severely, severely decontextualizes race and the anger associated with it and that is fertile ground for alt facts to grow. Add in the wild landscape of the internet, and uh, it's easy to sell rebranded mind Kampf ideas to a generation who has been failed by public schools. A lot of these ideas, easily debunked. Alt facts have that quality. However, one thing kept screaming at me through the subtext of those arguments, and that was, why should I be hated for who I cannot help but be? that was a black man in America that resonated with me. I have spent so much time defending myself against attempts to demonize me and make me apologize for who I am, trying to portray me as something that I'm not, some kind of thug or gangster or menace to society. Unexpected compassion. Wow. But though I ended up finding some incidental compassion for them, and when I say compassion, I don't mean sympathy. I mean a cause and effect emotional understanding of how drip feeding anti-Blackness could get you there. If you take that in your whole life, if you're not surrounded by people of color, if you don't have any Black friends, if you heard your uncle say certain things, you know, if you keep watching cops all your life, you know, then I get how people landed there as well as falsely taught history. But with that compassion, that didn't erase the understanding of the threat level that they pose. And I'm trying to get folks to see this. And the fact that, you know, we're not harping on this, the fact that like there's police commissioners, I believe, in Colorado or former police commissioners that have been associated with the Oath Keepers and they don't have news cameras at their door, that there isn't a strong societal deterrent poses a threat to us all.
0: Yeah. Just continuing to ignore it just allows it to grow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Something else that struck me about this story was that I why is this not a bigger conversation in Colorado right now?
1: Right. You know, I think that the danger of white supremacist violence has this very, very large blind spot in terms of the population. And that is it is only a threat in terms of how dangerous it is to people of color. And if the people of color proportion isn't that large, then it's not really a threat to us. And I think that that's one of the greatest errors that a majority white population can ever make in the presence of white supremacist violence. Most people that white supremacists kill are white.
0: Interesting. So I see what you're saying, though, is like, eh, white people don't see it as a threat, so therefore it doesn't get talked about.
1: Right. Either that or there is a tacit blind eye. but. I feel is difficult for me to discern is how much of what is what. The kind of lukewarm reaction to the presence of white supremacist violence, which is domestic terrorism, is very reminiscent of patterns that I've been seeing all my life. You know, um, I remember in, what was it, around 2006 or seven. The FBI memo from the counterterrorism wing went out across police departments nationwide saying, be on the lookout for white supremacist actors. And we saw the same lukewarm, I don't know, okay, I guess, from law enforcement back in 06 and 07 as we are from the general populace right now. Until one of those actors turns out to be somebody who kills a black person, which starts a Black Lives Matter protest, which you know, could end up having violent consequences in the city. And now, oh, my God, how did this happen? You don't want to let it get that far. And this is what I'm trying to draw attention to and have been trying a long time to get folks to folks eyes on. And sometimes it feels like an uphill battle.
0: I mean, I think it is an uphill battle in terms of you're asking white people to do some real soul searching and even something as simple as looking around at who we're associated with, but it, yeah. it makes people uncomfortable. So they turn mm-hmm. away, you know?
1: Well, I think that the, the, the true danger of domestic terrorism in the form of white supremacy and the mythos that surrounds it puts white people in more danger than they've actually ever known. You see a friend of mine uh, sent me a video by a guy named Malcolm Nance and Malcolm dance is a counterintelligence expert and he analyzed the Trump movement, um, which he classified as an insurgency. From the perspective of, let's say, a foreign analyst would, if he were looking at America from the perspective of like MI6, right, and you're looking at a foreign country and you're trying to discern where the fracture lines are and how dangerous is this going to be? And his assessment was stark. The very fact that insurrectionists on January 6th were able to get so close to the cops, Malcolm Nance's, because they had the best disguise ever, white skin. When you look at the numbers, the, of course there's hate crimes towards Black folks that you know are reported in an FBI database, but also they're turning their target to just the left. They're their ire towards just people who they consider liberals. Charlottesville, only one person died, a white woman named Heather Heyer. You know, Kyle Rittenhouse, who may himself not be a white supremacist, but is certainly a a symbol of power in their circles, killed two white guys. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, you know, even people who consider themselves white allies actually are in the line of fire. Historically speaking, when it comes to the threat of white supremacist violence, almost as much as the black folks and Jewish folks that they tend to target the most in this country. So this was a big wake up call and I saw a blip about it and people are not taking this as seriously as it needs to be taken.
0: Yeah. So there are members of the Oath Keepers that are themselves law enforcement Mm -hmm. and and some were part of this group that you know, we're part of the insurrection on January 6th. Is that, do do you feel like law enforcement is sort of part of that disguise?
1: I think that it always has been. Black people are the canary in the coal mine. It serves all Americans to listen to our testimony about the dangers that are posed to American society. Though they may affect us most acutely, they will affect everyone broadly. We have been calling them the Blue Klux Klan for a while not because we want to be mean spirited it is because there is a history of recruitment and infiltration from white supremacist organizations into police forces that are as long as the history going back to slave catching you see what i'm saying and so they go around breaking heads right they go around hurting folks why because police work is tough work and there's a wink and a nod given to the cowboys the guys who might have a swastika tattoo underneath their police uniforms uh you know but they do the rough guy work of intimidating the quote unquote bad guys but with that comes a whole different set of problems that they only generally care about on the back end when something embarrassing happens
0: right and i mean i'm just thinking about i mean there are so many instances of police violence that are clearly racially motivated throughout history, like you're saying, how how even police began as as slave catchers. And yeah. I'm thinking about um, when I spoke with a historian at History Colorado about uh, gay clubs in the 60s and 70s. And there mm. was this cop, Buster Snyder, that just sat outside and harassed people. But he was also known for harassing Chicano youth and black and brown youth in Denver. And, like, he had his job. <laughs> like yeah. You know, and and so they're in these really, really rooted in our deep in our communities. So just to finish up, Theo, based on your experience and thinking about, okay, not just the individuals, but, you know, we're looking at this massive sort of roster of folks involved in these these far right groups. What could be done to stop the growth of them?
1: You know, there's got to be a deterrent in some kind of way. Back in the day, actually, uh, the federal government provided that you know, the Department of Justice was set up to protect Black folks from the immense violence that happened to us right after the Civil War during Reconstruction. And a lot of the times white supremacist violence was met with the smackdown from government and they're not getting that. There's a way to do that, but it must be confronted. There must be a deterrent and you gotta be wise about picking your battles. But at the same time, they picked the battle with us to begin with, and we can't let that go ignored. If we do, you can guarantee that the democratic experiment as we know it uh, is in real peril. And if we don't start treating it like that, and if we start turning the blind eye and believing that somehow white folks have something to gain by this ideology, uh, then it will be too late. The cancer will have spread and it will be malignant.
0: Hmm. yeah i mean i think it's important look at our history we right. know what the outcome is mm-hmm. you know what i mean it just has a different face or a different look or you know or even just different clothing and not necessarily a different look right well theo wilson thank you so much
1: hey i appreciate you having me on
0: and here's what else denbrights are talking about Well-known scholar, professor, and author Patty Limerick has been fired from the Center of the American West, which she co-founded at CU Boulder nearly 40 years ago. The Colorado Sun reports that there aren't a lot of details yet. An email sent last week to the Center's supporters said only that she had been, quote, unexpectedly removed from her position as faculty director and board chair. Limerick served as Colorado's state historian for several years, and she's on a state board tasked with renaming geographic features with offensive names. She remains a fully tenured professor at the university, but we still have questions about what's going on. And well, ugh, it's really real now. Domo is officially closed for good. Friend of the show, Gil Asakawa reported for Westward that the Japanese country-style restaurant will never reopen, with owner Gaku Homa instead choosing to focus his time and energy on his dojo and his various humanitarian efforts across the world. Prior to its surprise TikTok fame that most likely led to its closure, Domo was a literal refuge from the bustling city. Long live Domo, and best of luck to you, Homo Sensei. Today is Cabrini Day, in recognition of Italian Catholic humanitarian Francis Xavier Cabrini, who's known as the patron saint of immigrants. And it's also the first state holiday in the country named after a woman. That's a welcome replacement for Columbus Day, if you ask me. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell TikTok about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See you later.